Infex Medicine is your gateway to resources, research and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Stay current by visiting fxmedicine.com.au to register for our email newsletter and exclusive members-only content. FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, where we live and work, and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Joining us today is Daniel Robson, Daniel is a naturopath and sex therapist who has been in clinical practice for the past 20 years. Daniel has a passion for sexual health, having completed a Master's in Sexual and Reproductive Health in Psychosexual Therapy in 2021. With Leah Heckman, he co-authored the Male Reproductive System chapter in the second edition of Clinical Naturopathic Medicine and has experience presenting to a professional audience on the topic of natural medicines and sexuality. Daniel is also part of the collective who operate Gould's Natural Medicine, the historic and iconic Hobart Apothecary and Clinic. Male sexual dysfunction is very common, with an estimated 20 to 30% of men reporting at least one current sexual difficulty. Despite this high prevalence, I feel like men's health, and particularly sexual health, is a neglected area, generally, but also in our industry. And I wonder if this is in part because practitioners often don't know or feel comfortable navigating what is still considered to be by some a taboo topic. However, considering the distress sexual dysfunction can cause clients, it's a topic I really wanted to explore with you. Welcome to FX Medicine, Daniel. Yeah, thanks. All right, so let's get into it. Firstly, when I tell people I'm studying to be a sexologist, there's often this awkward, confused pause. So can you outline what does a sex therapist or sexologist do and how can they help clients? Because I often feel like there's some misconceptions in this area. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really familiar with that awkward pause as well, Lisa. (laughs) So I think that awkwardness can initially be because the misconceptions might be that sex therapy is like a hands-on type of therapy, which (laughs) it isn't. (laughs) So I think that's one of the things that I like to clarify with people first is Mm. that the professional professional associations, the Society of Australian Sexologists, for example, of which I'm a member, they completely prohibit members engaging in practices of a sexual or sensual nature. So sex therapists are really a diverse group of health professionals. The unifying Part of what we do is that we specifically work with people to assist with sexual difficulties, them Mm. and their partners. So there's people from medicine, from nursing, counselling, social work, psychology, and physiotherapy backgrounds, and as I've learnt, um, more naturopaths coming into the scene as well. Mm. So they're really a diverse group of people, and I think that's going to really inform how we practice. But I guess that unifying quality being that we're working often with psychoeducation, counselling, behavioural type of homework techniques, working on communication within relationships as our primary focus as we kind of consider wealth there's a whole lot of 
physiological influences in sexual function. It's really those psychosocial aspects that are, I guess, core in really mm. maintaining sexual difficulties. Absolutely. And I, I think that psychosocial aspect is really, really important because when patients are seeing someone that is qualified in that area, I feel like they're going to get a much better result. I think we really want to be able to hold that space well for patients, particularly if there's a history of trauma and things like that. We don't want them to be further traumatised by seeing someone that's not qualified to hold that space well. Yeah, I think following on from what you're just saying, I mean, I found myself as a naturopath with an interest in particularly male health and, and I guess being interested in male health meant that I started seeing a lot of clients with sexual problems, as you'd mm. expect, and particularly erectile dysfunction. Mm. And I found myself ill-equipped <laughs> to mm. deal with the dynamics that I was seeing in the room. And I and I guess I just felt like I was really out of my depth. And I thought I really want to study more in this area and have those skills to be able to have more of the conversations that put the problem into a context. The other element of that, of course, is we're working with people's you know, lifestyles and diet and doing all the physiological stuff. But the reality is, is that sometimes people's function doesn't change. The erectile difficulty remains. Mm. And so how does this get incorporated into this person's sexual relationship and, and still have it be a flourishing and enjoyable and pleasurable experience for everyone? Yeah, I think it's I think it's so important. I remember when I first started in private practice and I had a young man come and see me and he had issues with libido and I mm. I didn't know how to hold that space properly for mm. him. And I feel like I did a really terrible job um, because mm. I, I didn't have that experience and, and the same kind of wisdom that I do now to navigate that. So how can practitioners comfortably navigate the topic of libido in a consultation? Because I do feel it's such an awkward subject for a lot of people. And as a clinic supervisor, I often see students feeling initially really uncomfortable about just navigating through questions about the reproductive system, let alone mm. libido. And sometimes they say they feel like it's out of their scope. So, you know, where do you kind of go with this? I guess from the outset, I kind of figure that, you know, as holistic health practitioners, sexual health is part of mm. is part of our scope. But, yeah, as we've sort of outlined earlier, I mean, there's a, a certain depth that we might go with clients that we, we would go if we have a more extensive background in that area than we would as a general health type of um, practitioner. But I guess for me, it's really... Um, addressing or thinking about my own beliefs yeah. and my own values and how they relate to sex and sexuality. So I think, you know, as therapists, we can do a lot just by listening and yes. being empathetic and, and validating people. So that's a big part of what we do, but we can only really do that if we're able to do that from a space of non-judgment and we're able to be present for our clients, which does necessitate us being able to hear what people are talking about and and not bring our own stuff into it. So I guess that's the first thing. I guess apart from that, though, like the big part of the barrier within consultation is, yeah, our own embarrassment, yeah. I think. And, and I guess that comes back to how we manage that and how we manage our beliefs around that. But also our perception of the embarrassment for the client. Mm. Um, and I think that also relates to how relevant we think the questions are for our clients. So I guess when I can certainly relate to this feeling, it's where I think, well, gee whiz, what's this got to do with what this person's coming in with? You know, yeah. like 
I mean, sometimes it doesn't have a lot. <laughs> so maybe we'll, we'll be you know, pretty rudimentary about how we deal with it. But, but I think for a lot of the times, you know, we can find you know, most chronic health conditions, they're really quite likely to have some impact upon a person's sexual health or, or their sexual relationship in some way or another. So I guess that's how I frame it up. If I'm seeing someone who's say, presenting with a lower urinary tract symptoms, for example, we know are closely linked to sexual difficulties or diabetes or cardiovascular disease. Again, you know, these are sort of main risk factors. I'll, I'll kind of frame it up that way and just say, hey, you know, look, it's really common for people who mm. experience X condition to have difficulties with sexual function. Is this something that you're dealing with? And yeah. and then if it is, then is this something you want to talk about? And mm. just give, invite them to have that conversation and we can explore it deeper. And if not, it kind of helps plant the seed for some time later. I can think about a number of clients where I've just put that in to the conversation and really that's not what they're coming in for but then another consultation or two later they're like okay I'm actually really ready to deal with this now and I want to talk about it more yeah. and that's cool you know I think we, we build up rapport with our clients and we open up that door to be able to explore that further. Yeah I love the way that you frame that it was very professional and it just slotted in really really nicely too because I was going to ask where do you where do you ask that question? Like, do you wait till you get to the, the male reproductive system and then slot it in there? But I guess that you're just slotting it in where it fits right for the condition yeah. that they're presented with. Yeah, where it fits. I mean, look, I, I guess I do try to go with the flow in a consultation. I mm. suppose that's something I've learned to do more as I've become experienced as a clinician. But of course, if it particularly is that primary complaint, I'll bring it in earlier um, mm. within the consultation. But yeah, in the systems of view, it might just come up when I'm sort of moving through the, the reproductive system question. Yeah, yeah, because I, yeah. I usually put it in there if it's not a primary complaint. And I, th- mm. I like the way that you bast it because I think that often clients are embarrassed to talk about it. Like it's not ne- mm. necessarily something they'll put in their presenting complaints. But when you ask, they're actually really relieved and the majority will be like yes yes like and they're they're happy to talk about it and those that don't want to talk about it will generally say oh I don't want to talk about it or it's not an issue and then you just kind of move on so but I think generally patients are are really happy that you've asked because no one else has asked them. Mm, Absolutely and yeah chances are if someone Sitting on that one, if we don't ask, there's a really good chance they won't tell us. Yeah. Or they might tell us just as we're about to finish <laughs> and we're already over time. Yes, yes. <laughs> that would be my experience. <laughs> okay, so as we outlined in the beginning, sexual dysfunction is incredibly prevalent with up to 30% of males suffering from sexual dysfunction at any time. And then this number actually increases dramatically as men get older. So we're looking at 50, 60%. So it's very, very prevalent, but not really talked about much. I'm really interested in what underlying drivers, risk factors are there for practitioners to be aware of um, with clients presenting with this sort of stuff? Really, any number of things can impact upon sexual function, like Mm. I've um, mentioned earlier. But I guess the big ones with male sexual problems, one of the most common presentations is is erectile Mm. um, difficulties would be cardiovascular health and cardiovascular disease and diabetes. I mean, that's a a big one that we can do something about. Mm. And there's a fairly large contribution of lifestyle factors. So diet, um, 
sedentary lifestyles, of mm. course, smoking um, is a big one. So the, the kind of work that we're generally doing with clients around that sort of stuff is all really relevant in mm. this space. Medication side effects, that's mm. a, a fairly big one. You probably encounter a lot more of that, particularly your antidepressants, SSRIs. That's mm. a really common side effect. So tricky one to deal with in many respects. Yes. But, um, yeah, I guess it's one that we will we will encounter and we'll need to navigate around. Mm. Um, and then, of course, yeah, we've got all the stuff around mental health and, say, depression, of course, mm. is a pretty big contributor. I mean, you know, coming back to the treatment for depression, but also depression itself is mm. a bi-directional relationship, causation, and also can cause be caused by sexual problems, particularly erectile dysfunction. So quite a lot of things. And then all the stuff we touched on earlier, our own beliefs and cognitions and our prior experiences and, of course, experiences of trauma and our education, all that stuff can pile on in there and and impact upon how we are functioning. Yeah, because where there's that anxiety, I guess, around, it can really kind of compound things kind of that nervous system mm. dysfunction once once I guess there's that one episode of erectile dysfunction it seems like the brain kind of just goes into overdrive any time and mm. I, I've read that anxiety can affect up to 25% of men so it's it's really really big mm. I'm mm. so interested in this mindfulness because there's a lot of study going on with mindfulness and libido and and reducing anxiety with this sort of picture and particularly Mm. in women there's great research I'm guessing obviously from what you're saying the same is true for men you know how you said that practitioners can kind of do this but does your patient need to see someone for specific mindfulness in this area training do you I think, think that's, a, that's a really great question? I mean, I think if you're like an, a naturopath who's seen someone and you can identify that um, anxiety is a, a component of what's going on for them, and you've got good rapport, then I can see absolutely no reason why you can't. And certainly, if you've got a background or understanding of even just some simple mindfulness type of sizes, like I mean, I've you know, it wouldn't be unusual for me just to do a bit of breath awareness with the client mm. at the very outset, like I can start from the very beginning, let's just say, hey, you know, let's just learn a breath awareness type of mindfulness practice and and then build upon that as a as a skill down the track. But yeah, I, I think we can we can definitely start with at least some of the basics. It's just skill building. Yeah, absolutely. I, mm. I think so. Yeah. Okay. So I'm sure everybody wants to know, I do anyway, <laughs> what are your favorite <laughs> herbs? Do you use herbs in this area? Yeah, absolutely. Um I guess that's where I started. Mm. So I do use them and, and I still continue to. Like mm. it, Even when I'm doing sex therapy work, it's nice to be able to have something in that initial consultation mm. while I'm still trying to get my head around what is going on to be able to give to someone if they're open to it, if they want it. Mm. Um, chances are if they're coming to see me, they know that's what they're likely to get. Yeah. Um, I certainly consider myself to be a, a herbalist-focused naturopath, so mm. I would use a lot of herbal medicines. I would often um, recommend pine bark extract. It's probably my number one. We're going to most mm. of my herbal herbal mixes, and that's based upon a number of studies using it for erectile dysfunction. Using a proprietary product, which isn't available in Australia, but mm. yes, yeah, so I'd use the pine bark extract and often in combination with L-arginine, mm-hmm. and I find that can work quite well. So I use it as a liquid extract mostly, mm. and but occasionally I might sort of send people 
online to get a product if they mm. don't want to take liquid. Mm. But I find the liquid extract works quite well. Mm. I just wanted to ask you about the pine bark extract. What are the actions of pine bark for erectile dysfunction? How is that working? Mm. Yeah, well, most people would probably know it as an antioxidant um, cardiovascular herb. It does appear, or at least the claim is that it increases the activity of nitric oxide synthase. Mm. Um, so it's working on that vasodilation pathway. So with the studies where they've kind of used the proprietary product, they're combining that with L-arginine, mm. and L-arginine is a precursor to nitric oxide. Mm. So, um, so you're kind of amping that up and you're, you're using something to facilitate that, that production of nitric oxide. So that's the basis of it. Mm. Um, okay, lovely. What else? Ah, yeah, so <laughs> saffron. Oh, my, my favourite. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, look, the research for it's a bit mixed, at least in male sexual problems. Um, mm. There's a bit more support for it in female sexual difficulties. But, yeah, it's got that traditional basis as an aphrodisiac. And, yeah, it's such a lovely mm. nervous system tonic. I think, particularly in the context of low mood, depression, anxiety, I really like to use it. It's also got those cardiovascular benefits. And, yeah, one study that was an open-label study, they used quite large doses of the saffron for mm-hmm erectile problems and it showed an improvement but there was another study done that didn't show any effect but so it's kind of a bit mixed but from my experience at least in the context of everything else it seems to help oh i'm so excited this saffron is just the best it just does yeah, almost everything yeah. <laughs> yeah it does seem to do everything i, I think it, we do use an extraordinary amount of saffron in our clinic um, yeah yeah and the, definitely those mixes are almost always got it in there. Yeah. yeah. Do you use much Panax ginseng? Because I know it's such mm. a, it's so indicated as a male tonic. It, it, there is a little bit of research on there showing that in men, I know with erectile dysfunction, it seems to help with their libido. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I do. Um, yeah. That would be the other, say if I was doing a herbal complex and again, you know, I use a lot of liquids, um, it often I, I do individualise things, mm. but often it would be maritime pine saffron and <laughs> ginseng. Yeah, you get you have your ones that, <laughs> that work really well, right? Yeah, scratching my head and thinking, oh, well, okay, yeah, do my mix. <laughs> yeah. What about tribulus? Because I feel like it's not one I tend to use too much off in my clinic, but it's one that patients will often do themselves. It's it's mm. you know the one they look up on the internet and they're like, oh, tribulus, I'm going to take this one. Hmm. Yeah, similarly, I don't have much of a relationship with tribulus, <laughs> but I'm familiar with the research mm. that supports, at least to some extent, supports its use. So, mm. yeah, look, a lot of my clients will be taking it and it would be on my list of you know, possible things to try with, particularly in that yeah that context of low sexual desire. But, yeah, look, I must admit it's not one that I recommend a lot, but mm. I could certainly see why people would and, and certainly support that. Yeah. So you use saffron from that nervous system kind of tonic aspect. Mm. I use I use a lot of passion flower for this uh-huh. sort of picture that we're talking about too. What are mm. your thoughts on any other nervines that you tend to use? Mm. In our clinic, we use a lot of motherwort. So I'd probably use it similarly to how you might use passion flower if, I was, if anxiety was a pretty key presenting issue. Mm. Um, I find that to be quite an effective anxiolytic and fairly quick acting for that purpose. I think I probably took a hit of it before this podcast. (laughs) 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 And also um, with Ania or ashwagandha, I Mm. think is quite well indicated in this space as well. It's got that traditional use in 
males. It Not does. the research though, but there is quite a good study using in female sexual mm, problems. And mm. yeah, and I think there's like, I mean, of course, as an adaptogen and mendiolytic, it's very well indicated. So yeah, it often gets recommended. Yeah, I think a lot of people think of withania as being just a female tonic, but traditionally Mm. it was such a male tonic and there is quite good research for it for males too. So, yes, that is a Mm. good one. Mm. Yeah. And look, I think we can have this tendency to um, gender our herbs and Mm. I think that's like there's some good reasons for that. Like sometimes we do have some different bits. (laughs) (laughs) But as far as I think particularly when it comes to the stuff around sexual desire and yeah, interest and look at all that sort of stuff. Like, I think there's a lot more in common <laughs> with yeah. males and females than than what we think. So, yeah, I'd find that a lot of those those remedies we might use too gender specific. Mm. All right. What about the nutrients? Zinc tends to be, I think, everyone's top nutrient. Should it be oh. at the at the top of the pyramid? <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's a great question. Yeah, it is pretty popular, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of reasons to use zinc, but I mean, I do recommend a lot, but more if it's a, a risk um, mm. for deficiency, you know, based on a person's dietary intake, it'll, it'll come in. I don't do it as a standard male repro nutrient. The research that I'm familiar with, I mean, you think there should be a lot more research looking at it, given its relationship to the reproductive system, but it's pretty limited to some specific conditions like renal failure. There's some... Mm. Um, there's a study that gave zinc in testosterone deficiency secondary to renal failure, and that seemed to have a, a beneficial effect. So, yeah, it could be indicated, but it's, I'm not flooding my patients with it. What about vitamin D? Mm. Because I know there's vitamin D receptors all over the male reproductive tract, but I feel, mm. again, you know, is is it a good one? <laughs> Tell me your secrets. <laughs> yeah, that's well, not much of a secret. Um, <laughs> Again, it's it's more uh, associations that I'm familiar with, with, again, hypogonadism and vitamin D deficiency. There's mm. a, at least a couple of studies that show a relationship between yeah, low vitamin D and um, higher prevalence of hypogonadism. But again, like I think if it's deficient, then it's corrected. Mm. I don't think that really... I mean, I can fairly safely say, with, at least with my clients, there's a good chance they'll be insufficient, so I'll supplement them as a matter of course. But yeah, I think if you're sort of living in sort of more um, sunny climates, um, then, then mm. you might, yeah, might be more relevant just to screen for vitamin D mm. status before throwing supplements at them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I'm always big on <laughs> testing. I'm huge on testing before because not everyone is deficient. Right. Yeah. And people respond quite differently to, mm. to supplementation as well. I mean, mm. I think yeah, yeah, we can fairly safely recommend, yeah, well, moderate doses, mm. <laughs> but also don't like to just overburden people mm. with um, shopping bags full of um, oh. supplements either. Yeah, yeah. agree. <laughs> totally agree with that. Okay, so mm. what about nutrition? Because... Again, it's something that I think patients want, they come and they want to implement dietary changes. I saw a mm. really interesting, it's something I refer to all the time, but I don't know if it's if it's too much, um, the 2011 study, which was examining intake of pistachios and it was about 100 grams. Mm. They got them, the male participants who had some sexual dysfunction to consume these 
100 grams of pistachios for lunch over a three-week period. And at the end of the three weeks, they observed an improvement in the erectile function parameters as well as lipid profile. So I get super excited about a study like that. But then the other part of my brain is like, oh, that was only three weeks. And can pistachios really do that? Can they? (laughs) I couldn't claim that they they do, but I guess they're quite a decent source of our arginine. So So that's um, what it is. A good sort of nutritional reason. And of course, we know that nuts are fantastic for cardiovascular health. And Mm. there's quite a lot of research and meta-analyses that demonstrate that cardiovascular risk factors come right on down and even risk of death from myocardial infarct is Mm. reduced by consuming nuts every day. So that's, of course, over a prolonged period as opposed to three weeks. (laughs) Yeah, look, um, it's a lot of nuts. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'd be hard-pressed to get people to eat that many every day for Mm. forever. But, yeah, I definitely incorporate nuts as an initial recommendation because most people don't eat enough Mm. Um, and I do draw upon that that cardiovascular benefit as being my main rationale but yeah I do get excited by studies like that too it's nice (laughs) to to see you know see just food as medicine yeah but yeah it might be too good to be true but you know it's not going to hurt it's definitely um, nice to recommend yeah what about alcohol because when I think back to that first male I ever had that had Mm. issues, he was drinking like 15 beers in one day after work sometimes Ah. and smoking marijuana and things like that. What sort of recommendations do you have around alcohol in situations Mm. like this? Yeah, the relationship with alcohol and sexual problems isn't super clear cut, but it does seem that those high levels of intake are likely to have detrimental impacts. And I think we can think of all manner of reasons why that would be. So I think you see, especially someone's drinking 15 standard drinks a day would, you know, so their effect on their liver and of course the impact on cardiovascular health and their mental health. At the same time, alcohol can also be a part of people's rituals around sex and, Mm. you know, having a glass of wine to wind down with a partner. And so my advice around it is really sort of moderate intake, Mm. um, I think that in realistic intake around alcohol, I wouldn't see as being a problem or a contributor to a person's sexual problems, but definitely that problematic intake would be a focus for intervention for sure. Mm, Lovely. Mm. So anything else from a dietary perspective? Mm, Yeah, look, I guess the the broader diet quality, we know the Mediterranean diet Mm. um, is associated with better sexual functioning, both males and females. Ooh, and, I didn't um, know that. Yeah, more association. So mm. I guess you can always take that with a grain of salt. But I mean, that, you know, there's good reason for that, the mm. cardiovascular health benefits of the Mediterranean diet. There was a study, I think, from memory where they looked at males with diabetes on a Mediterranean diet, followed them, I think, for a couple of years, and that they were able to measure improvements in their erectile function over that time. Mm. But you could imagine all manner of things that are going on with that kind of intervention and it's a long haul. But mm. Yeah, definitely. So any like my dietary advice really follows that and I'll work with people to get as close to a plant-based whole food diet as possible. Mm. Okay, so I think as naturopaths and nutritionists, we, we've heard there's lots of great herbs and nutrients But I think for us, it's also a great area for collaboration and referrals in this area. When I I often refer to a sexologist, also because they're often psychiatrists as well, when should a naturopath or nutritionist refer to you or someone like Uh, you? Well, yeah, that's good. 
good question because we sort of covered that a bit earlier on, mm. didn't we, when we mm. looked at scope of practice. And mm. look, I, I think once we're kind of moving into that space of, I guess, past the kind of basic psychoeducation and counselling around sex, like we can, you know, naturopaths, of course, can, and they're wonderful at working on, we're wonderful at working on that, the lifestyle and diet and the herbs and all that stuff. And I guess those individual factors that could be at play in a person's sexual problem but of course sex happens in a context and often there are going to be sort of relationship impacts and responses so a person's partner is going to respond in a, in some way or another that may help or, or may hinder um, mm. the situation so I think whenever you can sort of see those dynamics playing out then um, or you're thinking that yeah we really need to move into some deeper kind of behavioural type of um, type of interventions and I'd be um, yeah referring to, to a sexologist, someone like myself or you know like particularly if you encountered someone with a um, like significant um, com- uh, relationship conflict then mm. you'd be thinking of a relationship um, therapist and not necessarily someone like myself unless they've got relationship counselling background mm. um, yeah and of course you know, if you, you know if people have significant trauma backgrounds mm. and you'd be wanting someone someone who's well qualified in that space as well yeah amazing yeah. thank you thank you so much i was so excited to talk to you and i have <laughs> learned so so much um key points there, there are so many but definitely pine bark extract that's something i'm yeah. going to be trying in my patients for improving erectile dysfunction i, di- I didn't know that one i didn't know uh, yeah. saffron's one of my favorite herbs but i didn't know about it for actually male sexual dysfunction so i'm incredibly excited to try that one too and i uh-huh. think probably most importantly for us to really reflect on our own kind of values and the baggage that we might bring in um to when asking our questions and and to be really aware of that too yeah thank you thank you lisa it was good fun (laughs) i really enjoyed it too all right Mm -hmm. thank you everyone for listening today don't forget you can find all the show notes transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the fx medicine website i'm lisa costabir and thank you for joining us we'll see you next time This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The Biocuticals Clinical Range has been developed exclusively for clinicians. This product range offers complex formulas, higher doses, and specific ingredients for specialised cases. Biocuticals Clinical infuses quality, credibility, innovation and professionalism into an exclusive product range that meets the needs and demands of private clinicians. Visit biocuticals.com.au to learn more.